There you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero and hosted by the Heroes Media Group. This Navy veteran and SEAL has an aura about him that will make you want to get up and take your game to the next level. He has overcome great challenges and is doing his best to put his mission in the right place. He's helping others live their lives, businesses and individuals. And I can't tell you how honored and humbled I am to have Jason Redman here on today's episode. And I really appreciate and I'm very grateful to have you listening. I know you will enjoy this episode. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You got my name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our veteran guest today on this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is Navy veteran and SEAL Jason Redman. And I got to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm looking at his bio, and I was just joking with him in a second ago, and, you know, I'm winded and I'm inspired looking at it because this person, this man, this Navy SEAL, this veteran, this American has done so many things. I don't think he's doing it to put anybody to shame, but when you start seeing the things that Jason has done, you're going to scratch your head and you're going to say, I got to get up off my rear and start doing something. So let me just say that kudos to you, Jason, for inspiring the rest of us out here. John, thanks, man. No, I'm honored. Uh, You know, I I tell a lot of people uh, just trying to make the most of a second chance and uh, make a difference in the lives of people around me and obviously make a difference in, you know, my life and my family's. Well, you're definitely doing that. A little bit about you. Uh, looks like you're originally born in Ohio, but you're obviously, you moved about quite a bit right now. You reside in Virginia. We can talk a little bit about that. You did serve 21 years in the world's finest Navy, uh, United States Navy, uh, 11 years as an enlisted SEAL, you know, and I got to tell you, man, every freaking book that I ever read about SEALs and the SEALs that I have met, and you might not, you know, you're probably humble, but you guys are like superhuman. When I start reading about some of the stuff that you guys go through, I'm like, how does a human being do that? Again, more accolades to you for getting through SEAL school and for training some of the world's finest uh, uh, Navy people. So I want to hear more about that, too. And it says you were a training instructor and you also served not only as an enlisted SEAL, but 10 years as a as an officer. So I'm not sure if a lot of guys do that, you know, go enlisted, then officer. But you certainly have seen the, the SEAL world from both sides. You're the first guy I've ever met that has graduated from Old Dominion University. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And you graduated the highest of the highest you can get, summa cum laude. That's pretty impressive. You wrote and you published The Trident in November of 2013. We mentioned your book. There's a guy who was actually talking about you that runs Shift Magazine, uh, Robert Garcia, out on the West Coast. He wants to plug into you and, and, and learn more about you. We'll talk more about that. Uh, the Trident was selected as one of only five books in 2014 as part of the Chief of Naval Operations Professional Reading Program. That says a lot. There's a lot of books out there about 
well, the Trident about seals, but to be selected as one of the top five books, holy cow, Jason. 2009, you founded Wounded Wear while still recovering in the hospital from your own wounds. And I'm sure that inspired you to do that. In fact, that's, I think I met you in 2000 and I think I was up in Chesapeake in 2015, managed to stop by your office. You had one hell of an operation going on there. And uh, we'll talk about that project. You founded SOF Spoken. It's a speaking company that you started in 2013. And like all Navy SEALs, you guys focus on leadership, teamwork, and the overcome mindset. You've received lots of awards. We can get into that. But I want those who are listening Uh, To hear this, your military decorations include the Bronze Star medal with the V device. That's for valor. They don't hand those out. Those are earned. Purple Heart for your wounds. The Defense Meritorious Service Medal. Navy Commendation Medal. Joint Service Achievement Medal. Navy Achievement Medal. Not just one, but five. Man, you are putting me to shame, brother. Combat Action Ribbon. Two awards. U.S. Army Ranger Tab, and numerous service awards. You've received numerous awards and honors in addition to those military decorations. And I got to tell you, I'm just honored and pleased to have you on today's episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio. Thanks, Jason, for being here. John, honored, man. Thank you. Well, let's get started. You know, you moved around quite a bit. Tell us about Ohio and what it was like growing up in the Redmond family. You know, who were your mentors did, you know, all that kind of stuff. Let us know about it. Yeah, you know, we, uh, growing up in Ohio, we left Ohio when I was fairly young, but uh, definitely, I, I think the biggest thing that I remember as a young kid was this <clears throat> deep sense of patriotism and military experience. Dad had served in the Army, so that was kind of my, my first touch point. He wasn't in the Army when I was a kid, but obviously he had those experiences. And, you know, I remember seeing pictures. He had his old Army uniforms. My dad was a jump master and a rigger, uh, so he had jumped out of airplanes. And he even had an old parachute that the Army had gotten rid of and he kept. So I used to play with that when I was a kid. And then I would hear stories about my, my grandfather uh, who was a B-24 pilot in World War II, a very decorated B-24 pilot, flew all his missions, received the Distinguished Flying Cross, seven air medals. My grandfather on my mom's side, uh, they actually immigrated from France, and he actually went back and fought with the French Foreign Legion in World War II. Um, my great uncle was shot down in the Pacific. He was a pilot and killed in the Pacific. Uh, so I just grew up with this strong military influence and it's all I ever wanted to do from a kid. So that was, so basically then, you know, with all those great, basically heroes in your background, uh, that was your childhood dream. Absolutely. Uh, when I was younger, I wanted to be a pilot like my grandfather. And, you know, when I, you know, probably early teens, uh, well, you know, 10, 10, 11, you know, GI Joe was real popular. And, uh, I got really intrigued with the special operations side of the house. I was really intrigued with the Rangers and green berets. And my dad told me about, uh, the seal teams. And I started looking into that. There wasn't a whole lot of information you could find back then, but the little bit that I could find really sparked my curiosity. And, uh, that is the road that I started to pursue about the age of 14. So you were studying up on the Navy SEALs very early on, but 
So, so you didn't go to college right away after high school. You went right into the Navy? I did. I actually joined the Navy when I was still in high school. September 11th, 1992 is the date that I joined the Navy uh, in what's called the delayed entry program. So you basically pledge to go in the Navy, and the Navy kind of owns you. Uh, you would go to weekly, or not weekly, uh, monthly meetings as part of the delayed entry program with the recruiter. And then as soon as you graduated high school, you headed to boot camp. And that's uh, that's exactly what I did. So all your buddies were going away to school somewhere and you had to write the boot camp. What was that like for you? You know, it was good. I was following my dream. It's exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, about the age of 15, I started training uh, to be a SEAL. I had set my sights on that goal and I never, I never looked off of it. Uh, so for me, boot camp was the first step in getting down that road to get me to SEAL training. So were you involved in any high school sports? Did any of that help you along or did you do anything? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I was a, uh, you know, I played football, although I was, a, I was a real small guy. I'm not a big guy. I'm about 5'8", and, you know, 165, 170 is about where I average. And uh, when I was in high school, I was tiny, man. I, I was a real late bloomer. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I... <laughs> I don't think I got up to my full height until probably, you know, 18 or 19. 16, I was probably still only about five feet tall and about 100 pounds. But I went out for the football team. <laughs> I was a tackling dummy, but, man, I, I was <laughs> I, I never backed down. I mean, it fed my fire just to be able to get out there and play. I got humbled wrestling. I wrestled at the uh, 100 at that point, you know, junior year. I was wrestling at the 119-pound class. And uh, our state champion wrestled in that class. And, man, that guy just whooped my butt right and left. Um, but it, it made me hard, and it made me hungry. I mean, every day I came to practice thinking, man, one of these days I'm going to beat him. And I, <laughs> I never did. Well, that's, but, that's great, man. I, I was a wrestler, too, but I was a lot smaller than you, man. I was a freaking peanut. I wrestled at 98 pounds, and I was also a wrestling dummy, and it was, it was those days were insane, brother. Yeah. They were a lot of fun, man. I mean, I, I highly encourage everybody to play sports. I mean, you learn so much about yourself. You learn how to push through adversity. You learn how to be part of a team. You learn how to have, you know, focus on accomplishing something. So I know those early years were, uh, they were great for me. So you so you're in the Navy, you're a young guy, you're right out of high school, you're in the Navy going. Where did you go? Great where did you guys go? The Mich- uh, Great Lakes? To, no, I went to Orlando. Orlando, uh, which doesn't even exist anymore. I think they shut Orlando down maybe in ninety five. I went through in ninety uh three. So yeah, middle of the summer, hot as all get out, and uh going to boot camp down in Orlando. It was good. You know, our company was a uh it was a tough company. And we, you know, our our, uh, company commander did not like us very much. So we got a lot of extracurricular activity, which I just loved. I mean, I was all about it. I was like, this is great. You know, this this is getting me ready for SEAL training. So tell us about that. Tell us about the the SEAL selection process. And how long were you in your your duty station before you got selected or had that opportunity? You know, the way they do things now is much different than how they did it back when I went through. But So when I went through, you basically said, hey, I want to become a SEAL. And in boot camp, they would ask for volunteers. So during boot camp, you know, at some point, third, I think third or fourth week of training, uh, they would say, who wants to volunteer for, you know, to take the SEAL screening test? And, you know, there were several of us that went and did that. And it's a, um, <clears throat> the test itself hasn't changed much, a little bit. It is a uh, 500-yard swim, 
And then uh, it is uh, uh, as many push-ups as you can do in two minutes, as many sit-ups in two minutes, and then as many pull-ups as you can do. And then uh, and then it's a mile and a half run. And back then you did it in you had the navy dungarees and these you know clunky steel-toed boots called boondockers, and you ran in those boots. So mile and a half. And that was the screening test to qualify to go to SEAL training. So uh, I qualified and I earned my slot. And, uh, you know, so right there in boot camp, I knew that I was slotted to go to SEAL training. Uh, what class were you in? So I actually classed up with uh, 200, which I really wanted to graduate with that class. I just thought it was so cool that I was in the bicentennial class. But, uh, you know, only about 25% of uh, guys that go through training make it through in one shot, make it through with their original class. And I unfortunately felt, you know, victim to that statistic. I got injured uh, post-hell week and uh, got rolled back. Um, so I actually double rolled. I rolled from 200 to class 202, and 202 was the class I graduated with. So tell us about that training. Yeah, man, buds training is pretty brutal. Um, you know, the thing is, when you're young and you know what to expect, um, I don't think any of it was a super shock to me. Don't get me wrong, it's incredibly painful. It's, uh, it is a grind. Think about it, six months that you are grinding through that training. Now, I will say, I tell a lot of people this because I went through ranger school also, and everybody likes to ask me, oh, what's harder, ranger school or buds? Well, buds, hands down, is much harder. But there's a significant difference. During SEAL training, uh, the majority of the time, you're not working straight through, you know, so during first phase, you know, the first nine weeks of training, you know, the average day will start at about 4 a.m. and you'll go till eight or nine o'clock at night and then you're off. You don't have any instructors yelling at you. You don't have anybody following you around. Your time is your time. So if you want to go into town and get a burger or have a beer, you can do that. Um, you know, and obviously ranger school is much different. There are parts of BUDS, Hell Week, obviously, you're going for an entire week straight. There are certain other blocks of training where you're going straight. And then the last month of training, uh, you go straight through. There are no breaks. Yeah, Ranger School is similar. You, you, it's two months straight where there's no breaks. Um, so, you know, the grind of Ranger School is significant. I remember thinking at the beginning, I was like, wow, I got two more months of this. Um, but buds physically and mentally is much more difficult, but ranger school is very hard. Make no mistake. I don't want to discount anybody out there that's ever gone through ranger school. Uh, it was an incredibly hard school and I have a lot of respect for anybody that's completed it. That's pretty incredible. Um, tell us about the bell, the bell at buds. Uh, we hear a lot about it. Uh, and guys have said they've heard that thing ring and tell us about that. What's the impact of that bell? Yeah, the bell is a real psychological thing, and I'm glad that they have not removed it to this day. It's still there, but uh, in the uh, in the center of the Bud's compound is what they call the grinder. It's the asphalt area where you do your morning workout sessions or you know any of your workout sessions. And off to the side of that grinder in front of the first phase office door is a bell that hangs there. And if any student wants to quit, decides that they've had enough, they go up and they ring that bell and say, I've had enough. And they, they will then, they'll take their helmet off and the helmets are lined in a straight line that runs the entire length of the grinder. They put their helmet down. We call that, where the helmets go, we call that death row. You know, it's an amazing program. It's an all-volunteer program. At any point, if you don't want it to be a part of training any longer, 
All you have to do is go ring that bell and say, I'm done. Um, interesting, during Hell Week, they actually take the bell off where it hangs in the grinder and they have it mounted on the back of a truck. So it follows you around everywhere you go during Hell Week. Uh, so they make it easy for you to quit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a psychological thing. I, you know, in a lot of my talks where I talk about the overcome mindset, I talk to people about the three rules of the overcome mindset. And, and rule number one is don't quit. You know, the interesting thing, and I tell every Bud student, every kid that comes to me and says, I'm going to Bud's, what's your advice? And the reality is you cannot control all the external factors that will cause you to fail. Um, you know, sometimes there are just things outside your influence that'll happen. You know, you get injured, you, um, you know, something comes along, you get sick. Uh, you can't control those things. The only thing unequivocally you can control is whether you ring that bell or not, or whether you quit. And, uh, and that's what's so interesting. I tell, I tell all these kids you go through, as long as you don't ring that bell, you have upped your chances of graduating significantly you know because the problem is if you quit you just you just guaranteed failure you know you automatically selected yourself out of the program you know and that's got to have you know now that you talk about it like that jason that has got to have a freaking crazy psychological effect on you the rest of your life yeah, I think it does. You know, unfortunately, I've got some friends and I don't look down on anybody that went through training or even attempted it. I mean, it's so monumentally hard just to get to training, much less to start and then to go through training and to uh, endure that grind for any length of time. <clears throat> so I've got some friends that have quit and I, you know, I, I don't think anything of it, but I know they do. Uh, for many of them, it is a significant event in their life that I think they have regrets for. Now, there's a lot of guys I know in the SEAL teams now who quit the first time around. And if they're an enlisted SEAL, they are allowed to come back. Uh, they have to wait, I think, a period of two years, and then they're allowed to reapply and come back. And I know some great SEALs, some phenomenal SEALs who, uh, who quit the first time around. Yeah, that's pretty nice that they give them that option because that's got to be like a slow burn. So when you when okay, so you graduated, enlisted. Who was at your graduation, and what was that like? You know, the graduation is an amazing thing. Uh, you know, my family came, of course, and uh, it's just you know it's a monumental life accomplishment. Um, you know, to this day, I look back on that day. And it's just it's pretty it's pretty incredible. I mean, I, I don't know what the exact numbers are. I think you know the SEAL teams are a very small community. There's probably only I would estimate twelve, maybe fifteen thousand people that have ever graduated SEAL training. And uh, and you know you're just part of this very elite small community of individuals. Um, but something to also recognize, and that's one of the things that we try and <laughs> tell people. Uh, is you know that's just the initial step uh you just you know you you just started your seal career so there's so much more you have to learn and that's where i made some big mistakes later in my career um you know there's a tremendous level of confidence when you accomplish something like that but confidence very easily blends into arrogance if you're not careful and that's what happened to me a little later in my career well, you know, thank you for pointing that out. You know, it, it's it's quite obvious, and there's no argument that Navy SEALs 
are probably the most elite warrior on the face of the planet. And I, you know, I could imagine uh, that type of caliber of soldier, you know, some of that would go to your head. There's no doubt, you know, so you obviously would have to keep that in check. But, you know, tell us about what it was like getting to the team and then your deployments into the combat zone. And I'm sure you had several of them. Yeah, you get, uh, and you got to think about it. I mean, there's several things. So <clears throat> I joined pre-9-11. And the military was a very different place for those out there who served pre-9-11 and then saw that transition that occurred within the U.S. military post-9-11. I was part of that transition. So pre-9-11, we were really focused on more of training. And although special operations forces were doing some real-world missions, they were few and far between. And that's a lot of what I, what I experienced in my early career. Um, I did get into some real-world stuff, doing some things down in Central and South America, doing counter-drug stuff. And that was the first time um, we kind of touched upon combat. Uh, I was in a camp deep in uh, southern Colombia that came under fire from a uh, – the FARC was the was the was basically the counter-government force that you know was trying to overthrow the colombian government and a lot of their resources were fueled by the drug trade so obviously they didn't like anybody who was uh, (laughs) creating problems with their resource so we were in a camp and we took fire uh where we were at so that was kind of my the first time that i got exposed to uh gunfire what what was that like uh you know i think it makes it real I mean, you know, I don't really remember uh, fear, and that's something frequently in firefights I've experienced that I don't really recognize fear, and I think the biggest thing is mainly because you have a job to do, you know, in the middle of this firefight, you're not just sitting there thinking about, wow, there's bullets flying, Uh, there were things that needed to be done when I was in Colombia. Uh, just like every firefight that we were involved in in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were things that needed to be done. As a matter of fact, the higher I went, the more things that needed to be done. The more things, you know, I was tracking on where my guys were. How do we move people to engage the enemy? Where is the enemy located? If I need to call in a fire mission, uh, all the different details uh, that any combat leader has to be aware of uh, in the middle of this chaos that's going on around them. So, uh, you know, fear was never something that I really felt. Roger that, you know, so you stayed focused on the mission and that basically overrode those fear, uh, emotions. Yeah. And training plays a large part into that. I mean, by doing things over and over again, you create that muscle memory. Is it, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Tipping Point, talks about the 10,000 times that we do something before it becomes ingrained in us. And I think the U.S. military and special operations to the highest level, uh, we train to the absolute worst case scenarios that we can think of. I mean, some people would say that how we do our training could be even sadistic. But by doing so, it enables our people to be ready for some of these horrific situations that happen in combat. And, And sometimes, it's amazing as hard as we are in training you can't even comprehend some of the things that will occur in an actual combat environment but by doing that it enables you to think through that chaos and and make decisions and and execute well you know you mentioned the transition you know pre 9-11 post 9-11 and then you also had a transition all about the same time period from nco to officer was that around the same type of or same time period 
Yeah, absolutely it was. Uh, I got selected. Interesting, we were still in pre-9-11, and I got recommended for a commissioning program. I was at a decision point of my career to basically move up to a uh, another level within the SEAL teams or uh, to, take, to go down the path of this commissioning program. And, uh, you know, a lot of decisions led me down that road. Um, my whole family was officers. I was actually the first enlisted in my family. That was one decision. I had recently met my wife. We had been date. We had just gotten married, and you know, I thought, you know, well, if I get picked up for a commission and give me a break, I could go to school and get to know my wife, and then come back and hit it again. So I actually started school in the summer of 2001, and of course, September 11, 2001, changed everything for everybody. So I was right there at school when 9/11 happened at Old Dominion University. And I remember, you know, like many of us, you know, you never forget where you were that day. I was coming back from class and I was getting a cup of coffee in the student center and the kid behind the counter kind of nervously, you know, like nervously laughed and handed my coffee cup and (laughs) he was just acting really weird and I was like, you know, what's up, man? And he was like, yeah, you know, plane crashed into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon's on fire. And I was like, What? So I walked over to the TV in the student center and actually a teammate of mine, a fellow SEAL that we both went to school together, uh, showed up about that time. And he and I stood there and watched uh, 9-11 unfold in front of us. Um, You know, the first tower had been hit. We watched live. The second plane hit the second tower. And then we watched the buildings collapse. And uh, he and I looked at each other and we knew we were like, we're going to war. So I I originally... um, tried to drop out of that commissioning program. I went back to my old SEAL team and asked my commanding officer if I could get out of the program. I knew that I knew that the military would be mobilized and I knew the SEAL teams would be in that fight. And my commanding officer was probably one of the most respected uh, officers in the SEAL teams um, at that time. And uh, very prophetically, he, he looked at me and he said, Red, He said, this isn't a war that's going to be over quickly. He said, this is a war that's going to go on for decades. He said, you need to to finish school, and then you need to come back and lead. Pretty amazing to look back on that. You know, that was almost 20 years ago, and look at where we are. We're still fighting this war. That was some damn good advice, though. It was. Uh, I wish I had heated it perfectly. Uh, (laughs) I had some hiccups in my road of leadership. (laughs) So you stayed in school then, and then 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 you got deployed. I did. I got commissioned in May of 2004 and stepped right back into a SEAL team, jumped right into a, a workup and, uh, and deployed. And my, uh, my, my task unit that I deployed with was, uh, was linked to Operation Red Wing. So a lot of people that have seen Marcus Luttrell's story, Lone Survivor, and have seen that movie, uh, the guys that were in the helicopter were my, uh, they were my sister platoon. I actually was in that platoon originally. Mm. The guy, Eric Banna, played my boss, who was Lieutenant Commander Eric Christensen. So um, we were supposed to, we were in Europe when the helicopter got shot down, our platoon was, and we were heading to Afghanistan within almost a week uh, when we got word of that mission and everything that had happened. So we literally packed up all our gear and we flew in early. And 
that was my first introduction to combat. Literally the uh, memorial ceremony for the 11 guys we lost on that helicopter with uh, five of them being friends of mine, one being my boss, mm-hmm. uh, one being a good friend of mine, uh, Lieutenant Mike McGreedy, who actually originally pulled me into that platoon and who I had worked with at my first SEAL team. So a very sobering account and something that really showed me, you know, this is, uh, you know, you're, you're all in on this uh, because this is the repercussions of what happens when things go wrong. You know, people don't go home. So there was no doubt in your mind you knew exactly what, what you guys were fighting for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the stakes were as high as they can be. And, you know, you, you saw the level of evil that you were you were stepping up against what were your you know what experiences impacted you the most when you were deployed uh, you know i think that's a two-part question i think you can look at it from the the in your face uh everyday combat level i guess and and on that level i would say it was the impact of the people around us and the impact of war you know americans are you know, Americans need to get out more and see the rest of the world. I think a lot of Americans have very poor perspective. Um, we are very blessed in this country with both freedom and opportunity and not, you know, being in a, in a war zone, to put it bluntly. War is just a horrific thing and the impact it has on the community and the impact it has on the people. And that was something I really noticed driving around in both Iraq and Afghanistan frequently I would make combat nighttime entries where we are breaching a door and, you know, we're all kitted up, uh, you know, these special operations commandos with, you know, this pale green glow on your face from your night vision goggles and you're rushing through this house and shooting people and you were coming around the corner and there would be little kids. And, uh, and, you know, you would just have to pull them to the side and continue with your clearance and focus on what needed to be done. But I mean, I was a dad, I had small kids and you know, that was a thought that really often struck me, the psychological impact on these kids. You know, I mean, I thought about my kids, you know, what if somebody kicked out my door in the middle of the night and there was gunfire and this chaos going through my house and they were, you know, the difference is I'd, I'd try and be up and fighting them, but no different than these guys that we were going up against. So that that's you know that that is an impact that I saw when I was over there. Um, on the higher levels, you know, when you talk about the long term impact, I mean, I would say there were two parts. One was a failure in leadership, and that was a more gradual thing that culminated with a uh, perfect storm and a bad decision I made. Uh, And then the second part was obviously when I was wounded. Well, you know, so let's talk about that wound, the day that you were wounded. What was going on? and, And just tell us about that. It was at the end of my Iraq deployment, and it had been a very active deployment. It had been a deployment where, you know, as a SEAL, and a lot of people who have never been in the military have a hard time understanding this, but you you want to go into combat. You want to engage the enemy. You want to, as an old commanding officer of mine said, you want to slap the dragon. Uh, This is something I talk about in my book. Any individual, whether they are a fighter, Uh, whether they're a military member, if you are in the profession of defending people, protecting people, or, you know, assaulting in a military unit, you want to know you have the ability to do your job, that when 
when put into the fire, you stand up to it, act courageously, and are able to do your job. So for, for all of us, crave that. And, uh, and I, thankfully on that Iraq deployment, we did that many, many, many times. And uh, definitely by far the best uh, assault troop I was ever assigned to. Just an amazing group of very courageous, incredible people. And we were, we were getting near the end. Uh, we had been operating in the Al-Ambar province of Iraq for about uh, five months at this point, a little over five months. Very successful deployment. And we had been hunting a specific individual, the number one leader for the uh, Al-Qaeda uh, organization for the Ambar province. We got word that he was going to be in a specific place, and we went after him that night. Um, we took down the original building. He wasn't in there, and that often happens. You know, sometimes the word you get is a little dated, and in this case, that's exactly what happened. But what we didn't know is he had actually he was there, but he had moved to another house about 150 yards away. And his security element was in that house, and they came out, and uh, and our sniper saw the last remaining parts of the security element come out of the house. They went across the field, and they hid in a you know, kind of this densely vegetated field across the street from the house. So our sniper saw him, so I took my team and we basically maneuvered around. We were going to wrap these guys up and see what they knew. But what we didn't know is it was the last part of that security element and uh, they had a pre-stage ambush line. And we walked right into their ambush. Myself and two other teammates were severely wounded in that firefight. Thankfully, you know, my team leader and our other guys did an amazing job of stepping up and fighting back. You know, I contributed as much as I could. Um, I was, unfortunately, I lost a ton of blood. I was drifting in and out of consciousness. They moved us back to the one point of cover, which was kind of this large John Deere tractor tire. Uh, behind that, we had nothing but thousands of yards of open desert. Uh, so we ended up having to call a gunfire. We basically, you know, aircraft munitions down on our own position because uh, we were literally pinned down uh, normally about 45 feet from the machine gun that had us pinned down or one of the machine guns we had two so uh anyways we called fire directly on our position uh, i was ended up being the closest fire mission called in in the entire iraq war and thankfully both my team lead and the ac-130 gunship crew did an amazing job and we managed to get out of there. And I got medevaced, and the incredible military medical professionals saved my life. Well, thank God for that. And everybody in your unit survived that mission? They did. Well, thankfully, we didn't lose anybody. Uh, a couple other guys wounded pretty badly, but they, uh, they have since made full recoveries. What was the extent of your wounds? You know, you said you were phase, you know, fading in and out of consciousness and obviously you probably didn't really know what the extent was, but what did it end up being, Jason? Well, I, I, uh, I, I knew what the extent was. I actually thought I was wounded worse than I actually was in the firefight. I, uh, I took two rounds in the left elbow, which I thought had shot my arm off. Uh, it deadened all the nerves in my arm, but my arm kind of caught on the side of my gear. So when I reached over for my arm, I couldn't feel it. Uh, so I thought, great, I got my arm shot off. Um, uh, thankfully, it was severely damaged, but it, it was not totally shot off. Uh, and my team leader managed to get a tourniquet on it a little bit later. I got stitched across the body armor. I took rounds off my helmet. I took rounds off my um, front plate and side plates. 
had my left night vision goggles shot off and then I took a round in the face. Uh, it hit me in front of the ear, traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, blew out my right cheekbone, vaporized the orbital floor, broke all the bones above my eye, it shattered my, uh, took out kind of where your jaw bone connects to your jaw and it shattered my jaw down to my chin. That's, you know, just contemplating that, you know, it leaves you speechless, you know. So, you know, you, you mentioned what a marvelous team the medevacs were. And, you know, to, to suffer, uh, you know, munitions injury like that and to survive and, and look the way you do, man, you look great. Uh, I know it took you a long time to get back there, but but kudos to them and 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 thank you for that. Yeah, man, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, and I meet a lot of wounded warriors who say the same thing. I think, you know, you get a deep appreciation for life, uh, even though it's a really hard road and sometimes there's dark days. Uh, for me, I saw it as a second chance. I survived, and I've got a lot of friends who didn't. So I kind of feel obligated. A lot of people say, oh, look at all the stuff you're doing. You know, why do you feel so strongly to do all this stuff? Well, part of it, I feel like I owe it to my buddies who didn't come home. Um, you know, if I sat around feeling sorry for myself all the time, what kind of legacy is it for them? They would, I guarantee somewhere if they're standing up in the armies of heaven, they'd give anything to be back down here with their families. And, you know, they'd punch me in the face, you know, for feeling sorry for myself. So, you know, it's, it's go time. You know, you got to make the most of every day you have because your time on this planet is limited. Um, you know, and I, I just try and push and hopefully make a difference where I can. Well, and you certainly have done that, Jason. You know, I was just smoking and joking at the outset of this interview, you know, saying I was winded reading all the things that you've done and very, very impressive. And, you know, the way you frame it, it makes perfect sense to me that you wouldn't change a thing. And now you have the second calling. And my God, man, you have gone out of your way to uh, to do what makes you who you are. And not really out of your way. You know what I'm trying to say. But, you know, Founding Wounded Wear, you wrote, you wrote the book. You know, you've got numerous awards even after the injury, which, which speaks volumes about who you are as a person. And, you know, a lot of people talk, but you're definitely making things happen. And, and you know, that's a legacy in and of itself. And I, and I know you're not done yet. So tell us, you know, about the book. Tell us, you know, one of the five books that they, they require to read. But tell us about Wounded Wear. Tell us about what you're doing right now, what the transition was like, and how people can, um, how they can contact you or be part of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I have obviously uh, the nonprofit. So the nonprofit has evolved. Wounded Wear has evolved into the Combat Wounded Coalition. And uh, while we still have the Wounded Wear clothing line, I mean, one of the things that we started to transition in 2015, um, one, the war was winding down. 2010, although we're still actively at war, we were not operating at the same level in Iraq when it wound down in 2010. And even though we, you know, scaled back in Afghanistan in 2012. So prior to that, we were doing a lot where we go to the hospitals and we were providing the clothing and the clothing modifications. As that started to scale down, we started to see a much larger number of wounded warriors to the, that were getting out of the military and getting into the civilian community. And uh, a lot of them were really struggling and they continue to struggle to this day. And my biggest fear was, was there some kid out there wearing a wounded wear shirt that killed himself? 
Uh, and, and I was like, what did we really do for that guy or gal? We made him feel good for about a minute. You know, he had a cool shirt, but what did it really do to help him? So we evolved into the Combat Wounded Coalition to connect wounded warriors to programs specifically uh, that are out there, good, vetted organizations that are doing good things. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, if there was an organization that was providing post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury support, we wanted to know about them and we wanted to connect with them and then, you know, connect our wounded warrior to them. Uh, the next thing we did in 2016, I started to look a lot more at that reintegration piece because I'll be honest, I struggled when I got out. The military is very different from the civilian world. Um, the civilian world is a little more individually focused. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of the way the civilian world works, where the military is much more unit focused and mission focused. Uh, so when you get out, uh, you know, really, you have to take care of yourself and drive yourself forward to success. And although you can definitely build a good team of people to help you, at the end of the day, if you're not willing to help or lead yourself, the civilian world will just let you go by. I mean, people will say, hey, you know, that sucks. But, you know, it's not like the military where we're, we're literally going to bring you along if we have to. And that was something I really struggled with. And uh, we started doing a lot of research. I work with Old Dominion University, and we developed a program called the Overcome Academy to help wounded warriors get back out into the workforce, teach them how to be leaders, how to be resilient, and how to reintegrate. And uh, we've now since run two programs, and uh, we're hoping to run more. It's an expensive program, but I think it's well worth it for the impact. Um, so that's what I'm doing on the nonprofit side. You can find more about us at the combatwoundedcoalition.org. The other thing I'm doing that I'm really passionate about right now, and I'd like to get more heavily involved, is uh, brain research. We are losing, on average, 22 veterans a day to suicide. And one of the things that we are starting to discover is, is post-traumatic stress and is, is uh, it may not necessarily be an emotional thing. It's not like you went to war and suddenly you're emotionally messed up. We're actually beginning to see that there could be physiological damage that is occurring to people that have been in war. And a lot of that is directly related to blasts. Uh, the United States military is training unlike it ever did in the past, especially in the special operations community. We use explosives at a level that we never have in history up until, you know, since 9-11. So between the training way that we're exposing our people to blasts and then the level of combat we are seeing where we're exposing people to blasts, both our own that we induce and then, then the enemy blasts from IEDs, uh, we are seeing a record number of people with really erratic behavior who end up killing themselves. Uh, and I've had several friends of mine that have done that, guys who I would have said, no way, no way would they ever kill themselves. So I've gotten real big into brain research. Um, I donated my brain to the Concussion Legacy Foundation. So someday when I die, they'll peel my little walnut brain out of this skull <laughs> and they'll be able to look at it and they'll be able to see the blast patterns in my own brain and obviously the injury I sustained from the gunshot wounds. And they'll be able to look at that and hopefully someday diagnose uh, before guys are making these erratic, especially suicidal decisions. So if you're a veteran and you're listening to this, I really encourage you to donate your brain. The brain banks that we have out there do not have enough veteran brains. And right now we cannot 
Um, if you ever watched the movie Concussion and you've seen what's called CTE within our NFL players. They say, um, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's like one of the biggest things going on right now, Jason. It, it's 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 so badly needed, too. Well, and we're seeing it in the veteran level, but the difference in the veteran level is it's blast related. So with an NFL player, that concussion, that injury, the CTE is localized to the area of their head. They suffer the concussion. Now, obviously, our NFL players, many of them have had, you know, dozens and dozens of concussions over their careers. Well, the difference with our military veterans is that blast wave travels all the way through their brain. So... And it creates it creates an effect. It's like blast-related CTE. Right now, we cannot diagnose it while someone is still alive. So if they have this blast-related CTE and their behavior gets erratic, they're being misdiagnosed with all these different things um, because we don't have the ability to diagnose it, and we don't even know how to treat it. Um, the only way they can do that right now is post-mortem. So if you're a veteran... I really, really highly encourage you to uh, donate your brain. Check out the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Listen, you don't need it when you're gone, and don't worry. They're not going to come collect it early. Um, they, uh, but you would. this would be an amazing way for you to give back to your fellow veterans because they would be able to take a look at this and build our research so that hopefully we can help the guys and gals that are still living. So... There you go. That's what I'm doing on the nonprofit side. On the for-profit side, I am out there speaking all across the country on leadership teamwork and that overcome mindset. Uh, I've gotten into personal coaching, so helping people. You know, one of the big things that I talk about is I was involved in a real-world ambush, uh, real-world enemy ambush. Ambushes are designed to overwhelm the individuals that are in the kill zone. Uh, an ambush is laid out where they kind of have a set area they call the kill zone. And when somebody walks into the kill zone, you want to pour on as much gunfire and explosions as possible to hopefully overwhelm the people in that kill zone to basically just give up and die. Um, the only way you can survive an ambush, uh, that area in the kill zone we call the X. And the only way to survive an ambush is you have to get off the X. You either have to fight your way out of it or you have to blow through it. But no matter what. You cannot stay on the X in the kill zone. And I've met so many people across this country, whether it's in business, whether it's in uh, their own personal life, um, that have been hit by a life ambush. Mm -hmm. Something has gone wrong in their life. And instead of getting out of it, they sit there on the X and, and they just can't move past it. You know, most people, when something bad happens, they spend all their time looking back at what they lost instead of looking forward and how to get out of the situation. So I've gotten really big into coaching people on how to get off the X, how to figure out what the problem is, how to develop an action plan, and how to get off the X. So I'm doing that personal coaching. Um, obviously, we've got the Trident that's out there, my story. I'm working on a second book right now. I have a podcast that comes out every other week on Thursday. It drops called the JR Overcome Show. Myself and another SEAL talking about leadership, overcoming adversity. I write a blog every other week. So uh, Thursdays are my blog and, and the podcast on Thursday. So they just drop opposite of each other. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I got some of the Overcome products and stuff like that. So if anybody wants to find me, if you want to hire me to come speak and motivate your company, if you want me to come into your company and talk about how we need to develop mission statements, how to implement change, or if you just want to do personal coaching, all of that you can do through my website, jasonredmond.com. 
Well, definitely you're, you're on the road to recovery in a big way, and not only recovery for yourself, but for the hundreds, perhaps thousands people that, uh, you know, Jason, you're so right, man. People need help when those life things do hit them. And uh, my own personal story, you know, I was sexually assaulted at 11, kept it hidden for 40 years, and uh, of course the show's not about me, but I had a TBI alcohol-induced automobile accident in 2012, everything spun out of control i'm on my own road to recovery right now but but you know it's it's been good i call mine removing the blindfold i got a seven point um uh, program that helped me but let me ask you this you know what is what does freedom mean to you well, freedom is about choices and it, it is about choice and opportunity i mean that's really what freedom is and that's one of the greatest things about living in this country i mean you you know, for those that have been to other areas of the world, there's so many people that don't know what freedom is. Uh, somebody tells them what they have to do. Uh, and, and if they're someone that dreams of doing something else, it's not even it's not even an option. They don't have that choice. And that's what's so amazing in this country. You, there's no guarantee that you, you know, can do something you want to do. But you have the choice to go after it and you have the opportunity to pursue it. And hopefully through hard work and, and diligence and education and, you know, sometimes a little luck plays into those things, you can go after it. And that's what freedom enables. And I think, unfortunately, right now, there's a lot of people in this country who take their freedom for granted. Uh, they don't realize the blessing they have by living in this country to have that choice and opportunity to be able to do what they, uh, you know, whatever it is they want to do. But recognizing, you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. And sometimes it does not unfold the way you think it's going to. <laughs> that is so true. Let me ask you this. So what would you if you had a mission, you know, a message to send to non-veteran population about combat veterans specifically not just people who have served but combat veterans because i know that you guys and gals have have been through a little bit of a different ordeal than just being you know a peacetime soldier or sailor well you know what do you want them to know about combat veterans and then you know if there is that person out there and you know they're out there jason because you work with them every day out there in that dark spot you already touched upon one thing about keep going but you know what would be your message to them so non, non-veterans non and veterans, what would be your messages? So my message to non-veterans is right up front, take your, understand this, the, how amazing the freedom you have is. And understand that it didn't happen by chance. This country was forged through t- tremendous hardship and sacrifice. And, and millions of Americans who are willing to sacrifice themselves to ensure that America became the country it is today. And, and so, yeah, you talk about freedom, you have that choice and opportunity. And, and make no mistake, I mean, there's some people who want to downgrade or downplay, you know, the role the military has played. But our freedom was paid for by the blood of people who were willing to go out there and sacrifice for it. We would not have this country if it wasn't for the tremendous sacrifice that went into it. So that's one side. The other side is is our combat veterans man they they have been out there and they've seen some amazing things if you can learn how to bring them into your organization they they have and we need to teach them how to translate those skills that's one of the things that i'm trying to do but to teach them that hey 
you know, you have amazing leadership skills. You have amazing management skills. You have amazing team skills. You have amazing focus on how to drive forward and accomplish your mission, how to set a destination and get there. Those are some of the things that I'm really teaching to civilians and teaching that, man, I don't care who you are, whether you're in the military or, you know, whether you're on the battlefield or in the boardroom, uh, human skills apply. You know, the things of leadership, teamwork, uh, mindset, all that applies. And if you can find a great organization with that common experience, they can be a tremendous asset to your company. Um, for that individual that out, that's out there who's really struggling, that combat veteran that's out there struggling, number one, you got to get off the X. Listen, so many guys and gals who went to war never came home. They, they are still stuck in whatever incidents occurred on the battlefield. And whether, you know, they lost a friend, whether they lost a part of themselves, whether they saw the horrific side of war and they're still struggling to overcome it, none of that's your fault. Not only that, you can't change it. You can never go back and change what happened in the past. All you can do is shape your future. And the only way you're going to do that is to get off the X. You have to get out of that kill zone. How do you do that? Movement. Movement is life. Uh, so many people sit in their house say, you know, I don't know what it is about why we're wired this way, but when you're depressed and you feel bad, there's a natural tendency to A, not want to do anything, which is bad, and B, to isolate ourselves and not reach out to anybody, which is equally bad. It creates this spiral down. You know, you need to move. You, you need to A, get around some positive people in your life, and B, get up and move. Science has proven that when we get up and we move, uh, it, it, it changes the the um, the chemical levels in our body. Uh, they've shown it in the mind. Just a twenty minute walk will change your mindset. But so many people don't want to do that. So that's my advice to you, veterans out there who are struggling, man. You got to change. You got to get up. You got to move. Get off the couch. Get out of your house. You know. Number two. There's a lot of veterans. We saw this in a big survey we did working with Old Dominion University. There's a lot of veterans, unfortunately, who uh, look down somewhat on the civilian population. They, they want to say, oh, civilians are soft and they don't understand me and this and that. Yet they are, are a lot of our combat veterans have a chip on their shoulder when it comes to civilians. And hey, man, there are some amazing people out there that, in this world that never served in the military. But they are giving back in tremendous ways across this country through their own efforts, through philanthropic giving, whatever it is. You know, they've created an amazing company that's doing great things and they're employing people. They are out there. So get the chip off your shoulder. Just because you've seen combat doesn't make you the end all be all, man. There are some amazing people out in this world who are doing some amazing things and you could learn from them. And that's one of the big things I'm telling a lot of our combat veterans, man. Never, never downplay your military experience and never downplay your combat experience. But at the same time, you don't need to beat people in the head with it. Well, there you go. Some, some great combat and life wisdom from Navy veteran and SEAL, Jason Redman, who's doing some incredible things in his own right. I got to tell you, Jason, I'm honored to have you on Straight Outta Combat Radio for this episode. And I'm... I know there's hundreds of people, and you know, including yourself and your wife, that are glad that you made it back. Thousands, 
I'm glad you made it back because the things you're doing now are touching people in ways that that only you can touch them. And uh, I got to say, it makes me uh, and this is not cliche, man. This is no BS. But when I sleep at night, some of those nights I don't. But when I sleep at night, knowing that people with your type of character and bravery are out there in places that are dark and nasty and dangerous, protecting these freaking freedoms that I, I try so hard not to take for granted makes me proud to be a freaking American. And uh, I, I'm just so very honored and glad to, to be, you know, your compatriot uh, as an American. And, and just uh, God bless you, man. And, you know, we're going to do the, our best to spread the word about what you're doing with the brains and the people that you're touching. And uh, just got to say, man, you, you humble me. And uh, uh, that's about all I can say, man. Uh, John, my honor, man. And yeah, I'm just trying to make a difference. I mean, like I said, if uh, if you are, are looking for help to get off the X, I mean, check out my website, jasonredman.com. You know, I'm doing the coaching. If your company is looking for motivation and inspiration, uh, you know, I am. I feel very blessed. I got some great messages and content that I'm delivering to companies. I'm working on the workshops. And uh, like I said, check out our nonprofit Combat Wounded Coalition and check out the Concussion Legacy Foundation. They're a great group that's making tremendous bounds in brain research if you're a veteran donate your brain i need your brain <laughs> well thank you for that and uh, you know i will check that out and uh i know we're going to cross paths again drive on brother uh keep doing what you're doing you're doing some amazing things looking forward to the second book and uh if you get a chance you know i told him i would ask you, uh, you reach out to robert garcia or if you want i can give you the information at shift magazine He's doing some crazy things on the West Coast, and uh, he's getting a lot of play, and I know he, he, he was intrigued. He said when he was in the dark place, I got to tell you, this is, no, this is no BS. He said that your book helped get him through some of the darkest periods of his life, and it's a testimony. So God bless you, Jason. I look forward to the next time we can talk. John, yeah, please connect me. That'd be great. Absolutely, man. Thank you. Thank you. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Down.